This is Deray Alalia, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast, episode 38. Are you ready to be the master architect of your life? Are you ready to design your business and invest the needs that create the lifestyle you've always dreamt of? Are you ready to learn from entrepreneurs and millionaires who have achieved a certain level of success? Hey, this is Derek, location-independent entrepreneur, and you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hi, I'm Gina Lofton. I am an investor, and you're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey there, my name is Heather Havenwood, marketing coach and global entrepreneur. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. Hey, this is Mark Asquith, the host of the 7 Minute Mentor podcast, global entrepreneur and all-round geek. And you are listening to the Before the Millions podcast. I am MC Lobster, the cash flow ninja, and you're listening to Before the Millions podcast. You're listening to the Before the Millions podcast. But whether you're looking to invest for cash flow or build an online business that allows you to be location independent, you've come to the right place. Mr. Hollywood himself presents the Before the Millions podcast. And now your host, DeRay Olalaye. Hey, what's up? What's going on, BTM community? We're back for another episode of the Before the Millions podcast. On this episode today, guys, we're speaking with Mr. Nathan Tibber. Now, Nathan is an entrepreneur. He lives the definition of ready, fire, aim, or he has for many, many years. He successfully founded and operated more than two dozen businesses since 1999, grossing over 150 million in sales. What's crazy and fascinating about Nathan's story is that he just kind of had that go-getter mentality, that go-getter attitude. He didn't get hung up on education too much. He realized that best experience that he can get in his entrepreneurial journey was the experience of actually taking action, was actually learning from his mistakes. And that's exactly what propelled him forward. So his story is fascinating. After we get into his story, we start talking about some of the things in his real estate investing. We start talking about the importance of due diligence. In the buying phase, a lot of people get caught up on making sure that they're getting a good deal or that the owner that they're buying their new investment property from is being honest and straightforward and truthful and that there's nothing that you're going to discover after you buy the property and now you're in a bad deal. So there's a lot of fear around that. What you're supposed to do to kind of mitigate that fear uh, while you have the property under contract, you're supposed to perform what's called a due diligence. And during the due diligence phase, you're literally given access to almost any and everything that you ask for from the owner. So you're given access to financial statements, to bank statements, you're given access to the tenants, you're given access to the property, and you're kind of just combing it. You're running through it with a fine tooth comb and making sure that everything is exactly how, how it appears to be. So you're checking the plumbing, you're checking the electrical systems, you're checking the HVAC, you're checking the roof, you're checking any and everything during the phase because after After the due diligence phase, you're ready to close and you want to make sure that you're getting your money's worth. From a 30,000 foot view, we talk about the importance of a due diligence phase and we kind of get into some specifics. So there's a lot of nuggets to take away about things to look out for when you are going through a, a physical due diligence and a financial due diligence. Overall, guys, Nathan was amazing. He had great gems and great insight. Man, we're halfway through February, guys. The year's going by so, so fast. I mean, before you know it, we'll be in June. It's getting warmer outside. The gyms are less and less packed. You guys notice that every single year? After January is like this big drop off, motivation gone, depleted, everybody's just back to their normal routine. 
and the gym rats are like, okay, things are getting back to normal again. It's fascinating stuff, how the human psychology works. Guys, I'm excited. I'm just excited in general. Like, I'm excited to conquer this year, 2018, in all areas of my life, health, wealth, and relationships. I've committed to going to the gym at least five times a week this year for sure, but the plan is to do it for the rest of my life and make it a lifestyle goal. You guys know I've committed to my family and my friends and building an empire, so we're not going to get into relationships and wealth, but health is a one that kind of takes the back seat sometimes. And as entrepreneurs, we're working so hard and we have relationships to upkeep and family to tend to that we forget about our own health. Working out is one of the best ways to make sure you're staying on top of things and, of course, checkups and stuff. But physical activity every single day, get the blood flowing. It's nothing like it. So if you stopped last month, get your butt back in the gym. Got 11 more months to go. Baby steps. And then we'll talk about the next 45, 55, 65 years. Anyways, let's get to the show. DeRay's Tip of the Week. Tip of the Week. Share this podcast with a friend. Just one person. Anybody that you think would benefit from this information. Share this podcast Till this day, we have done no marketing, not a single piece of marketing for this podcast. It's all been organic, word of mouth. I love it. Let's keep it going. If you know anybody, anybody that this podcast could affect change in a positive way for, shoot them a little text. It'll take five seconds. And that's the best way I think that you can help in this community and help us grow. So short little tip of the week, but powerful one because we're going places. Let's get to the show. And now your feature presentation. Today, I'd like to welcome on the show, Nathan Tabor. Hey, Nathan, how's it going? Hey, Dre, good to be with you today. Hey, I'm excited for our conversation today. For those of you that don't know Nathan, Nathan is a full-time real estate investor. Nathan started investing back in 2006 and currently owns 166 units valued at $52 million. That's amazing. Nathan is an entrepreneur, business consultant, executive coach, and speaker. Nathan, we're going to get into all of that here shortly, but let's take it back. Let's go in the time machine. Let's talk about your upbringing. Let's talk about maybe high school or college, Nathan, and figure out how and why and when you had this epiphany moment to start investing in real estate. That's crazy. Hey, yeah, just one thing. I have flipped 52 million and I currently own 166. So just clarity wise there, I don't, the three, the 166 aren't worth 52 million. I've done 52 million in real estate. So. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Great. Just, Go make sure because those would be some. I wish I had fifty-two million. No worries. So let's get into your backstory, Nathan. Let's figure out how you were able to acquire one hundred and sixty-six units because that's a feat on its own. Sure. I grew up in a little town called Orange Crossroads, Alabama. It's right outside of Huntsville, Alabama, northern Alabama. We moved to North Carolina in nineteen eighty-five. Went to a local Christian high school here. Ended up going to a division to basketball scholarship at St. Andrews Presbyterian. Played about a half a season, had some knee injuries, went on to grad school in Virginia Beach. Anybody who knows me, I'm kind of a, a butterfly, my, as my mom used to say. I'm kind of got a little bit here and I do a little bit there. And my middle brother is a book smart. He can sit down, he's a doctor now, and he sit down and he can read for six hours at a time. And I'm like, no, nah, let's go out and do something for six hours. <laughs> so after grad school, 
my brother had started a soy company, soybeans. And I came in to, to work with him. It was a great product, but we didn't have any money to market it. And so here we are, you know, country boys from Alabama. My brother's graduated from Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. I got my master's degree in public policy from Regent University out of Virginia Beach. Now, how do you do something when you don't have money? Well, there's really only two ways, right? You borrow it or find an investor, bring someone else in, or partner up with someone. So I started going to ministries and saying, hey, if you'll sell this product, we'll give you 50% of the gross sell. I started going to dot-coms because in 1999, 2000, when I came into the business, the bubble of the dot-com was starting to burst where all these people would put money. So with e-diets and others. And during over six years, we sold $80 million of soy beans online in six years, all through affiliate marketing. Didn't spend a dime on advertising. The lesson for me even today is don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to think outside of the box because too many times today, even in all the creative world we're in, right? I mean, we're sitting here talking to each other and you're in Texas and I'm in North Carolina. I'm on an iPhone. I'm not sure what you're doing. I mean, just the, the technology that exists in, if you'd have told somebody that we would have been doing this 20 years ago, they'd look at you like, dude, you didn't lost your mind, but someone thought of this, right? So when you're faced with a situation that there's not a answer that comes by the book. Okay, so you've done A and now you've done B, but C's not there. That doesn't mean you give up. It means you find an ethical and legal way to do something other than C because you can't do it. You know, how many people are listening to the podcast right now that would say, well, I can't do real estate because I don't have time or I can't do real estate because I don't have money. Well, time, you know, take that out. How much time are you spending on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, watching funny cat videos a week? That's time that you could be learning real estate. So, you know, basically we sold this, you know, $80 million line online in six years. And in 2004, I actually ran for Congress at 29. I wasn't married. I was an open seat. I lost in the primary, but during that process, again, you know, someone, everybody told me, oh, at 29, you're too young, you can't run for Congress, even though you'd be 25 for the Constitution. I ran, and I ended up being endorsed by Art Laffer, Laffer Economics. You ever heard of that? Ronald Reagan's The Curve. The gentleman who wrote that endorsed my economic plan. People are like, how'd you do that? Well, I asked him. Didn't pay me anything. I sent him my economic plan and said, hey, Mr. Laffer, I'm in this political race. Will you look over this? And if you like it, let me know back what's your thoughts. And I get a letter endorsing the tax plan. Ended up losing, but in the race, I met my wife. I started a blog, blogging about politics, just my random thoughts. Two years later, I sold it to a publicly traded company. I wrote a book for Thomas Nelson Publishing out of Nashville, Tennessee on the, the United Nations. And I'm dyslexic. So for me to write, I'm not a writer, but you know what there is, you know what exists out there in the writing world? Ghost writers. Have you heard of those before? Oh yeah. You come up with the idea, go to five. If you don't know how to write and you're what's holding you back is you can't write your business plan or you can't write your investment packet. If you know in your mind the points of it, so you know what your plan is, you know where you're 
area that you're going to invest in. You've got it all there, but you just can't get the words right. Go to Fiverr.com or go to Facebook and say, hey, is there any friends out there? Go to Google and search business plans. There's places out there for 15, 20, 30 bucks. They'll take your skeleton, they'll take your thoughts and turn it into a two, three, four, five page business plan. I think in our society today, and it happens to me as well, we a lot of times we don't do what we want to do because of one small, but what in our minds we consider to be a very large issue stands in front of us. Well, I can't do that because to do this, I'm going to have to do this and I don't want to do it or I don't know how to do it. So, you know, after learning for Congress, I got uh, married. I actually got married during the primary. We have a 13-year-old daughter. After that, I was out of the soy company, and I was like, you know, what am I going to do? I needed a kind of an industry to get into. I've been in sales and marketing, and I opened up the paper, and there was a car lot for rent. I've never sold cars before, so I did a little research on it. A buy here, pay here car lot. Have you ever heard of that? It is what it is. Buy here, pay here. So it's for people who have really bad credit. So, you know, you kind of got your drive times and quick times, people who have decently bad credit. The buy here, pay here is normally for the people who have the credit that's underneath the barrel, down in the dirt. <laughs> I mean, they have no credit or it's horrible credit. So for 11 years, actually until three months ago, I just sold the car, the car business, but I started a car lot. I'd never, outside of my own personal cars, I'd never bought a car to sell. I didn't have no dealer's license, dealer bonds. I didn't know anything about it. But I looked at the numbers and said, well, if you can buy something for $3,000 and sell it for $6,000, take $1,000 down and charge 29% interest, you're going to make money. So in the first seven years, we sold 8,500 cars. And then we changed the model. The cash for clunkers kind of killed that industry for a while. So how I got into real estate, so I, you know, I went from you know, selling soybeans that I knew nothing about, still don't know anything about the actual, you know, the health side of this product, but it was sales. And then I went into writing and finding other people to write for this blog and gathering emails. So when I started it, it was just for fun. Then I found out the business side of it. How could I make money? And then I've you know, done consulting, I've done the email companies and, and various other companies in here. But so then I get into the car business, still don't know anything about cars. If you said to me right now, I'll give you $100 if you'll tell me what kind of engines in a 2012 sub Suburban, I don't know. I sold a bunch of them, but I don't know what kind of engines in it and don't really care. But 11 years ago, I was sitting in my, in my car lot in the office. Actually, one of the desks I'm sitting at was on the desk that was in the car lot. And a gentleman walks in and says, hey, I have an 18-unit complex. And if I don't sell it within 30 days, I'm going to lose it. This is 2006. At that point, I had bought two homes. I bought the first home. I'd lived there for a few years. I sold it, and I bought the home I'm currently in. I had little to no real estate knowledge. My dad was a painter growing up, so we had renovated a few things here and there. but. As far as it goes on a scale of one to 10, I was like a 0.5 on real estate. But the numbers he was telling me, I was like, you know, that looks like you could make some money on that. You got to go in and renovate it and stabilize it. The first five banks I went to. So I get the guy's information. I pull up the tax card, go by, I take a few, you know, pictures. And at the time, I didn't have a camera, I took a, you know, Polaroid that you used to have to 
not Polaroid, one of the little disposable cameras that had the little wheel on it. Are you old enough to remember those? I do. <laughs> and then I actually took it to a place that printed off prints, right? CVS, Walgreens. So I got 10 or so pictures of the property. And I went to banks that I had banked with over the years, had done a lot of business with. No, 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 no. Five no's. You know, how many people quit after the first no? A lot. What percentage of people would you say have something they want to do? They ask one person or they try once and they fail and they quit. Yeah. Probably 90 plus percent. Most people don't even get started, Nathan. Okay. So they don't even get off the starting block. <laughs> yep. Which means they fail immediately. Yep. And then the, those who do get off the starting block and they, they stumble, they trip, they don't, it doesn't go the way they want it to the first time. So they quit. So five times I was told no. And the sixth time I, Somebody said, hey, go over here to this small little community bank, Lexington State Bank. They've been bought out now. They had like three branches. Go see this guy over there named Jack Smith. So I call up Jack Smith and I set up an appointment and he said, come see me and bring your wife and bring one year tax return. Now, 2006, a little bit different time. Banking was totally different then than it is now. But I walk into the Jack's office and sit down and he said, he's not old, but older gentleman. He'd worked at Bank of America for a number of years. And he asked us two or three questions about the complex, took the information. And then you know what he did for the next five or 10 minutes? He asked me all personal questions. How's your relationship with your wife? He asked my wife, how do you, you know, does your husband treat you well? What he was doing, he just want to know if I was a good guy or not. What kind of character I had. Well, we sitting there and we're talking with him and he says, okay. And he takes and he turns around, he spins around in his chair and his back's to us. So my wife's sitting on my left, I'm like mouthing to her, what do we do? I mean, he just was in full conversation and then just stopped and turned around and started typing on his computer. Uh, about five minutes later, he turns around and he hands me a sheet of paper and he says, here, we'll do a hundred percent loan. 100% renovation and then close in 22 days. If I hadn't have stuck with the no's, I would have never gotten to the yes. So just because, I mean, anyone listening here who says, man, I've got the drive, I've got the passion, I know what I want to do, and you take it to one person and they say no, don't give up. Step back and say, you know, what's in my plan? Well, first, if you ever go to anyone, and you want to raise money or you want to do a deal, don't do it verbally. Take a piece of paper to them that says, this is what I want to do. This is where I want to do it. This is how I'm going to do it. You know, the how, what, when, where scenario. So they know that you're serious about this. So he gives me this sheet of paper. We close, start doing the renovations. A 12 unit that was right behind the building used to be, originally used to be part, they were all 30 units. The owner comes up and says, hey, I'll sell you my 12 units. So I go back to Jack Smith and say, hey, the guy here wants to, I got it all written up. And, you know, this is what it's going to cost. This is how much the renovations are. Here's pictures of it. Here's the geodata, the tax information. Jack says, yep, great, 100% financing, 100% renovation. So by the time I sat in his office and got a yes, in the time we closed, from the 18 to the 12 unit was about 65, 70 days. 
from the point we closed in eight and a half months, I bought, renovated, started leasing up, stabilized, and sold those units, two buildings, 30 units, and made 250 something thousand dollars pre-tax. With all the success that you've had, I'm sure that they've came with failures. Let's maybe talk about your worst entrepreneurial moment today and how you were able to bounce back from that and what you took away from that situation. So being from the South, we call it getting too big for your britches. You ever heard that before? I have. I did this first deal. And so I'm thinking, wow, you know, I'm hot stuff. I know what I've got going on here. So I run out and I buy another 24 unit complex. And during this time period, I have a, a good friend of mine who, she's retired now, but they develop, used to develop Food Lion grocery stores. They did about 50 or so developments. So very well established in the commercial real estate world. She asked me after I closed, she said, what was the cap rate on that property that you did? And I remember it was standing outside the front of her house. We just finished up dinner. I was leaving and I was like, I'm thinking in my mind, my I'm spinning, I'm spinning cap rate. So the roof comes like this. What's that little cap thing? Why would she be asking me, why would she be asking me what's on top of the roof? So five seconds, 10 seconds after she asked me, it seemed like an eternity. I was trying to figure out. She said, please tell me you didn't buy, you know, a half a million dollar piece of property sell it, make $250,000 and not know what a cap rate is. I was like, be honest with you, I don't. So instead of backing up at that point and learning and understanding, I went out and bought my, my second complex. Had a lawyer, had a landscape, a surveyor, did it all you know right. What I didn't realize at the time was just because these professionals tell you something and you have title insurance, doesn't mean you're always protected. So the day that I bought the complex, 24 units, I went to pull my building permits to start the work. But I couldn't start the work because there were two buildings there. The one I bought that ran parallel with the road. And then there was another unit that ran opposite of the road. Perpendicular. Perpendicular. There had been a line drawn between those two buildings years earlier. And the two buildings had been given to two individual churches, but they had never done any work on them. When they split the buildings prior to me, they violated the setbacks. And setbacks are the fire standards. So when you build buildings at certain times, the code, when those were built, was 25 feet. Corner to corner, had to be 25 feet away from each other so the fire couldn't leap buildings. In 2007, the setback this building was built in 68, 2007, the setback was 40 feet. So now I've bought a complex that has lost its grandfather. Made $225,000 for it. It needed about 60,000 in renovations and I could have sold it for about 450. It's a sweet deal. Spent the next 18 months, every day, every morning, every evening, every afternoon, every waking moment dealing either mentally or actually with how was I going to resolve this problem? It went from tearing half the building down. It went from, you know, just dumping it and and walking from it. The final solution was I needed to buy a tenth of an acre on the side of the setback. But once I bought that tenth of an acre, then I had to tear the other building down. But the other building was owned by another church. 
Long story short, I paid $75,000 for a tenth of an acre, and that $75,000 was supposed to be used by the church to tear the building down. The pastor of the church took the $75,000 and moved to Atlanta and didn't tear the building down. So it ended up, I had to wait for the city. The city did eventually tear it down. I had my tenth of an acre. It cost me a little over $150,000 more than what I had planned because I didn't do one thing. I didn't verify the zoning. Mm. And if no one ever hears anything I have to say other than, or I know we'll talk about this later, like make sure you're right with God. The second thing is if before you buy any piece of real estate, check the zoning. Go to the zoning board, call the zoning board, get a, a piece of paper that has their logo on the top, a date on it and signed by someone who manager or supervisor that says the property you the property that you are buying is zoned this. Even if it's a house. Because if you buy something and zoning's not right, do you know what you can't do? You can't pull permits until you've corrected the zoning issue. What are some of the things that you're looking for as far as zoning goes? Well you want to make sure that it's zoned for what you're buying it for. So if it's a duplex or a quadplex? Does it have enough parking? Is it fit? If it's sitting on that piece of land and you're going to use it as a 24 unit apartment complex, is it zoned or is it grandfathered in to the zoning to be operated as that? One unit, 10 unit, 100 unit, 500 unit? Is it zoned that way? What does this report entail? Does it, how detailed is it? No, it's just a one, it's a one page. See, so what happens, you know, if you're buying older property and it doesn't meet current code, you're grandfathered in. But if you breach that grandfather clause, then you're required to bring it up to the current code. So if you get a letter from the zoning department, just be one page that will say this tax code, this parcel number, this address, is currently zoned for this and is you know, operated as this. So in my attorney report, in my survey report, it all said grandfathered in. So all the information I got from third party vendors told me that it was okay. Well, afterwards it wasn't, so I had two options. I went to my title insurance company and said, hey, this is not right. They reviewed it and declined my claim. So when they declined the title insurance claim, I went to an attorney and said, they've declined my claim. And these two other people missed it. Do you know what the attorney said? Well, go ahead and write me a check for 10 grand and we can get started. Once you get into a bind, you can either go the legal route to try to remedy it, or you can go the other route and try to work it out through doing this. Hindsight, I don't know. Should I have sued? I don't know. I tried not to sue. I tried to stay away from attorneys because I got some friends who are attorneys and there might be some attorneys who will watch this, but normally when you get a lawyer involved, the only person who wins is the lawyer. Yep. So basically, I mean, right, it came down to a situation, you know, one of my worst entrepreneurial moments was not knowing what I was doing, not knowing the questions to ask not knowing the procedures on how to do it. So my passion and my enthusiasm and my drive got ahead of my knowledge and my wisdom and it burned me. It's my fault. 
So anybody listening here, be passionate about what you're doing. Be, you know, gun ho, you know, storm the castle, do whatever you need to do, but make sure that you're doing the process right. Make sure you understand the laws and the principles and the zoning departments and all of that. Because if you don't, you get what you want. But then once you get it, you're really dissatisfied with what you've got. Got my second deal, but man, what it did not turn out to be what I expected it to be. I love that, that we can take away so much from your experience. I love that you were able to take away so much from your, your experience and, you know, kind of fast forwarding through, through your journey, Nathan. So let's, let's talk about present day, you know, up until this point, what would you consider your area of expertise, your focus today? What was, what is your number one priority when it comes to your business? Business wise for me, kind of two, and they, they go kind of coincide. I do a lot of apartment conferences and speaking and, and writing, and I still do investing. Now, for me, I don't, I'm not investing right now because the economy's up. So as an apartment flipper, this is when I sell properties. I wait for the economy to go back down, and then I buy stuff at prices that make more sense because I don't hold things long term. Two areas I really go in and talk to people about when I'm talking. Uh, first is your due diligence process. If you don't buy a property right, if you don't understand what you're buying, what needs to be done, what renovations need to be done, how to verify the rent roll through bank statements and walking the units. I've got a whole kind of book course guide that talks about, you know, if you're buying a 12 unit complex or a 120 unit complex, buy one of those little $5 gauges from Home Depot or Lowe's that checks electrical outlets and go and plug it in every plug in every room and every unit. People say, man, that's, that'll take a lot of time. You know how much it is to rewire a unit, a two bedroom, one bath unit in this area, $2,800 to $4,000. So if you're buying a 12 unit complex, now I tell you that this happened to me after the fourth complex, uh, we started doing this because we'd go into a unit and say, Hey, great. Everything all, all right working in your unit? Oh yeah. Everything's great. 60 days later, we close. We go to direct everything good. Hey, the power doesn't work on the left side of my, of my unit. What? Well, yeah, it hadn't worked in two years. It's like, man, I just talked to you 60 days ago and you told me everything was good. Well, you know, the manager told me I needed to make sure I told you everything was good. So I stayed in good graces with it. But you know what? I'm out $2,800 to $4,000 because there's something wrong with the breaker box. Something wrong with the meter that I've got to pay for now because instead of taking five minutes to check every plug, I took 30 seconds to ask someone who had no interest in my company at all. Love that. That's great advice, Nathan. So speaking to a situation like this, let's say you do property diligence, you have your inspector come out and your inspector covers a wide array of different things, but you touch on something that your inspector may or may not cover. Is this something that you can pass off to your inspector? And if not, what are some other things that you check or that you like to highlight during your due diligence process that you may have to do yourself because your inspector doesn't do that? Hiring an inspector is good. They can really help you. And I, and I do that for folks. I'll come out and inspect their properties. Who cares the most about your money? Of course you. Yep. You. So if you're getting ready to drop 500000 or $5 million and you don't have a day or two to go walk the property and inspect it yourself, don't be surprised when something's not right. Because 
you're the only person who really is going to be really thorough in what you're doing. So uh, rent rolls. One thing I'm very particular about now is rent rolls because you know what rent rolls are worth? Nothing. Do you know what no. a rent roll is? Legally, do you know what a rent roll is? Verification, a rewriting of a lease. So it says Nathan Tabor signed this lease on this date. It ends on this date. Nathan is supposed to pay this amount of money and he has this much in a security deposit. It's an Excel sheet. So bought a complex doing $28,000 a month in revenue. I closed on it, it was doing 7,000 a month. The rent roll was right. The rent roll matched the leases, but those people hadn't been paying their rent and the owner, instead of evicting them, left them there and presented it to me as that's what they were paying. That's why you have to verify the rent roll. <laughs> uh, you have to do a financial audit. And we talk about that a lot. It's very important because that's how people get caught up in binds. You know, you see things like the rent roll and you're like, oh, okay, well, this is, you know, it's operating pretty efficiently. And then, like you said, you get into the property and economic occupancy and actual occupancy, the people living on property and the people living on property and paying rent, those are two different things, you know, so you have to be careful for it and watch out for things like that. The rent roll is one and also looking at the actual occupancy. Nathan, if you do have an inspector come out, what are some things that you should probably still want to go and do yourself besides uh, the things that the inspector would normally do? Well, you know, on, on the rent roll for me, the only way is to verify is bank statements. Yeah. You can send me reports from your accountant. That's great. I want to see where you deposited that money into a bank account. So if you tell me you're collecting 15,000 a month, depositing eight, I'm only giving you credit for eight. And if they can't take that offer, I walk from the deal. Oh, well, we put another 7,000 cash in our pocket. So you're that unethical. You're robbing the IRS of that much money. I mean, then what else are you lying about? I mean, that right there is a stop for me. If they can't verify how much they're putting in via their bank statements, I'm out. The other things, plumbing, electrical. So this is what I do on this now, knowing hindsight 2020, go and get two years worth of city complaints. Go to the housing authority and say, I would like for these number of units to get every housing complaint that's been done. So you sit down with them then and you start making an Excel sheet. Bed bugs, hmm, bed bugs, bed bugs. If you see a recurring issue, stopped up toilet, stop, you know, lower level, stopped up toilet, stopped up toilet, sewage in the bathtub, toilet won't flush. And over two years, say there's 10 units on the bottom, you see 30 or 40 city complaints about sewer in the toilet. What do you think the problem is? The sewer line somewhere underneath that complex is crushed and has roots or rocks or something in it. So if you're buying that complex, how do you know if a sewer line is crushed underneath a, a complex? You can go hire a plumber to run a camera down through there for three, four, five, six hundred bucks. Or you can get information from the city that's publicly available and sit down for 30 minutes and see exactly what's going on in that complex. I love that. If you see a complex that has broken windows all the time and graffiti, means you've got either some little thugs around or you got a gang problem. One's easily resolved, one's not. So I tell people all the time, I mean, pull police reports, pull housing reports, pull the data that's out there for two years and sit down and make yourself an Excel sheet out of it or a graph out of it 
And then you don't even have to ask anybody what's going on at that complex. You can see it from the past two years reports. I love that. And this segment on due diligence is, is amazing. And I hope the listeners are getting a lot of value from, from our conversation. But let's put a bow on this section. Let, let's tie it up and wrap it. Let's maybe talk about the general overall aspect of due diligence, because I think this is something we I probably should have brought up before we started talking about due diligence. But what is due diligence? At what stage do you do, you do due diligence? And what's the primary goal of, of doing due diligence on a property that you're about to purchase? So, you know, so due diligence is you're, you're in your time frame, you've written an offer to purchase the property, it's been accepted, and you've negotiated 30 days or 45 or 60 days to inspect the property. You've put some earnest money, most likely in an escrow account or a title company, depending on which state you're in, that says, I'm interested in this property, here's kind of some money saying I'm serious about this. So during that time frame, you have the right to go in and inspect use a mechanical, you have the right to lift the hood on the car, open the trunk, jack it up, do anything you want to, just look around in that car. So say you're buying a property and you're in that due diligence process and there's a unit they won't let you in. Unit C, oh, well, he works third shift and he's asleep during the day. We can't get in there. Do you know what I do on my due diligence list? Full turn. Yep. And then when the due diligence period is almost over, I have my list and I say to the owner, it's going to cost me $30,000 to do a full turn. I'm assuming that unit is down to the studs, the electrical plumbing, everything's got to be redone. That there's not a kitchen sink, there's not a bathtub, there's not a toilet. Guess what I get to see really quick? I love it. (laughs) So if you can't see something, if they will not let you see something, you run your numbers worst case scenario and add 20%. This is good. So during this due diligence period, it's your time to save yourself money. Roof, parking lot, windows, gutters, underhang, steps, railing, plumbing, electrical, toilet. Sit down on, you know what I do when I go in bathrooms now? I close the toilet lid, I sit down on the toilet and I run back and forth like that. You know why? Why? To see if it, see if the wood's rotten underneath the toilet. What does it cost to play? Now you know you you see people all the time. They'll step up in front of the toilet, in front of the bathtub, and they'll jump up and down to see if the if it's rotten. Well, you're only that part right there. You're only checking the bathtub. What does it cost you if you have to replace a flooring underneath the toilet? Eight hundred dollars, twelve hundred dollars, fifteen. Just depends on how far that water's ran and how long it's been running. But minimum, at least in our area, by the time you take a toilet up, take all the floor out, replace the two by 12s and put it back, deal with any mold or mildew issues, as long as it's not black mold, you're at 800 to $1,200. So it's worth my 10 seconds to sit on every toilet and shake around to see if that floor underneath there is rotten. Definitely. Definitely. Look underneath every sink, open up every, every door and see if there's water dripping on the bottom of the cabinet. If it's freshly painted, most likely there's water damage there and they've covered it up. So just, you know, start, I hate to say this. And I'm going to be kind because I am a property flipper and I am in real estate. But assume when you're doing your due diligence and you're walking property that that owner is trying to hide every negative thing that he or she can. So don't take anybody's word for it. Don't take anybody's, oh, yeah, that's okay. 
if you can't see it, I promise you it's probably going to cost you a lot of money. That's amazing advice, Nathan. And just kind of, again, rounding out this section on due diligence, we've talked about both aspects of due diligence, but I want to make sure that our listeners are clear that there are two aspects of due diligence. You know, you're doing a physical due diligence, which is a lot of the things that Nathan is talking about now, you know, checking the toilet, checking the plumbing, things like that. And then there's a financial due diligence, which we talked about earlier. And the financial due diligence is making sure that the numbers are what they appear to be. So, you know, checking bank statements, verifying leases with the actual tenants, meaning going door to door and asking and having tenants, you know, actually filling out a form saying what they pay in their in their rent because oftentimes what a tenant says they pay and what what management says they pay are two different things and I, it's crazy to me but but it definitely happens so there are two phases of due diligence which is a physical phase and a financial phase so make sure that you're completing both phases of due diligence before the end of the process so just want to throw that out there Nathan this interview has been amazing and I want to get to the last segment of our show, which we like to call our lifestyle acceleration hacks. Just personal advice. I'm 44 years old. I can look back and say, oh, I should have listened to those people. You should. You know, there's some things that people say to you. Don't make life about money. Don't chase just money because the more money I got, the more misery I got. Do you know why? Because money, because money was what I was chasing. Yep. If you get into the, the, the hamster race, the wheel of, I got to have money. Well, when you get money, then you spend money. And when you spend money, you got to get more money. And when you get more money, you spend more money. And it just make this about, I want to better myself. I want to better my family. I want to better. Money is the vehicle, but money is not the thing that I have to have because it won't work out well. Yep. Yep. I love that. And that speaks so true. When you when you have the, the mindset of helping others, of bettering, like you said, bettering yourself, bettering your family, but not only that, thinking about the, the lives that you can affect by being a real estate investor, not only are you providing jobs for contractors, for realtors, for attorneys, for this, that, and the third, but you're also providing housing for people. You're providing a, a shelter for people to be able to, to take care of their families. And I think that's amazing. So if you, if you kind of shift your mindset from chasing after the dollars to actually helping people and uplifting your community and helping your family, I think that upwards is the only way to go because you're not driven by money. You said money's the vehicle, money's the way to get there, but money's not the goal. You know, if the goal is, is to be fulfilled and to help others be fulfilled and to live a fulfilling life, then have this mindset and it'll take you far. So then you can enjoy the money. Yep. If your yep. mindset is helping others, then you have fun with it. Lifestyle design acceleration hacks. What is your favorite before the millions book? has to be the Bible. Just the principles of like the one thing, I, I know this will be quick and short, but a soft answer turns away wrath. How many fights and arguments and hurt feelings could you have avoided if you had just shut your mouth? I could have avoided $500,000 worth of lawsuits if I would have just sat down and talked with but I didn't. So when you start looking at the Bible from a business standpoint and a life standpoint, and the things in there that you'll find that if you apply is like incredible. I love it. Great recommendation. What is your favorite lifestyle design app? This can be a business app or tool. The AnyDo app. Ooh, so what's that? AnyDo is uh, just a little uh, helps with daily task. So uh, if you've never looked at the Ivy Lee method, it's pretty cool. It says at the end of the day, write down everything you need to do the next morning. So this little app is just a little 
organizer that I can put in there, first task for the day type. Very simple, free. Love it's it. Love any A N Y dot D O. Any do. And this is a, a phone app, correct? Phone. And yeah, they have a computer. It syncs up with your computer as well. What do you enjoy most about the way your lifestyle is currently designed? I enjoy the most of at this point in my life of helping others, having the time and the the heart of sorts to say, if you're going to do it, you're going to spend the same amount of time. So do it right. For a time, I didn't do it right. And then I started doing it right. When you don't do things right, you pay for it. If I could go back and redo, I didn't do anything on illegal or unethical. I just wasn't doing it the right way. It burned me. So that, that would be my advice on that. What were the sacrifices that you knew you had to make before the millions to get to where you are today? Laying your pride down, being humble, going and telling, look, I need some advice. I need some help. I need some counsel. No, 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 no to a yes. I would say today talking with, with people that I meet at conferences and stuff that there's this air of young and old that comes off and says, well, I'm a real estate investor. Yep. And they're wearing a really nice suit and a really nice tie, but they don't own any property. Some of the wealthiest people I know, I mean, worth $500 million, if he were walking down the street, you know what you wouldn't know? That he was worth $500 million. You might walk up to him and say, sir, can I buy you a cup of coffee? So be humble in what you're doing. I got fancy suits. Wear fancy suit. I don't mean to pick on people, but wear fancy suits, but glean knowledge from others. Do like you and I are doing. Like, what can you help me with versus what can I help you with versus, you know what? I know it all. You know what? I don't know it all. I know a lot about a specific subject, but I don't know it all. And now when I go to do something, you know what the first thing I do before I do it? I go sit down with someone or call them or text them and say, hey, I'm getting ready to do this. Do you know anything about this? What I'm really saying to them is, hey, have you failed at this before? And can you give me any things I need to watch out for? I love that. And I kind of want to ask a secondary question or make a secondary statement to that, because most people are probably like, well, as a first time real estate investor, somebody looking to get into real estate, I may, I want to look the part. I want to be able to give off confidence and things like that. And we're not saying that there's anything wrong with that. We're not saying yeah. don't take care of your appearance and things of that nature. It's more so where your heart is coming from, where you, what your mindset is, the type of the type of vibe you give off, what you're asking, if you're asking questions, if you're being standoffish, things like that. So when you're speaking on, on being humble, I'm sure that you're talking about in the overall aspect of your demeanor. Yep, exactly. Your spirit, your demeanor. I love that. Yeah. I love that. Hey, be confident. Put yourself out there. I mean, do that. I mean, go out there with it. But you can be confident and you can be out there and not be prideful and arrogant. We see it in sports a lot, right? Yep. I won't name names because I don't want to get into that. But there are athletes who are some of the best athletes in the world. And they'll stop and talk to the kids on the rope and sign autographs. Yep. And there's athletes who are the best in the world who will walk right past people and act like they don't exist. Yep. They're the same type of player. What's the difference? Their attitude, their humility, they're humble. And that's what I'm saying to people when you, even I do that now. And it, it takes a lot. It takes a bigger man to say, I'm sorry and mean it than someone not to, right? 
yep. to show some vulnerability. So just, I mean, all I'm saying to people is you're, you're right. It doesn't matter how you dressed. It's what's in your heart and your soul. Love that. Who is essential to your growth before the millions and why? Have to be my wife. Looking back, which I lean on greatly now, if you're married, especially in women, that intuition, their gut feeling, and I can look back and at times when she was like, something's not right there. I was like, oh, you know, woman, be quiet. I'm going to make money. <laughs> I should have listened to her because she ended up being right. Yeah. So now when I do something, you know, it, it is, it's, it's a humbling experience. Dre, I encourage you as you grow your business, the thought process is, well, I'm not going to tell anybody what I'm doing because they might steal my idea or I don't need their advice. Well, obviously, don't go talk to someone who you think is so unethical that they would steal your idea. Two, go sit down and talk with someone and, and seek their advice and then decide what's best to do. So my wife is my sounding board for that now of, hey, does this make sense? Look at this. Do you see something that's wrong here? Because really what I'm looking for, I'm not looking for what's right because I can see that. Hey, these numbers look great. This property looks great. Jordan's my wife. Jordan, what do you see that's wrong? What doesn't make sense? That's really what I want to know. And so a lot of times it's how we ask the question, right? If we go to someone and just say, hey, can you look this over for me? Oh, yeah, it looks great. No, hey, be specific in your question. Can you look this over and see if you see something wrong or see numbers that don't add or line two, seven, and 12 don't make sense to me? Can you help me understand that? Love it. Last but not least. Yes. Why do you think so many of us are stuck before the millions, even though we have every intention on getting to the millions? Fear. For me as well. I have it. It's the, it's the pride in us that says we don't want to fail. So we would rather not do it. We would rather not stick our necks out there and try than to fail. So the people that we see succeeding, the people that we see pursuing their dreams and getting it done are people who have been able to manage their fear. And fear is good. It's good to have fear because fear saves you at times. But it's also bad to have fear if it keeps you cornered of, what if I can't do it? Or what if I fail? Or what will other people think? Or you, know, you get into that mindset and then you never do anything. Yep. Yep. That's great advice. And that is literally the number one thing that I think holds us all back. Hey, advice on that. The way to overcome that is to write it down. Write down your plan. If you're starting out in real estate, write down, I want to do one house. Don't put it, you want to be a, worth $5 million. I want to do one house for $80,000. I want to make $20,000 off of it. I need to find an investor. I need this, this, and this. Set your goal. Have your big goal up here, right? I don't know if you see my hand. Have your big goal up here, but set your goal, your first goal here. Get to first base. Get on the team. Make the team. Go try out for the team and get on it. So do it. And hey, you know what? Talk about that pride and laying it aside, being humble. Go find someone who's already doing deals and say, hey, can I just be your apprentice on the deal? Yep. Can I just follow you around and listen to what you're saying? Because a lot of people come to me and it's like, hey, can I come do this deal with you and I can get 50%? It's like, why would I give you 50% of my money? 
with people who come and say, hey, can I come hang out with you and, and learn from? Sure, absolutely. I don't I don't mind that at all. Yeah. Yeah. Because they're not bringing anything to the table. They've humbled it. And humble is not a bad word. It's a good word. So, you know, I encourage your listeners, if they're wanting to get started, lay aside that the $20 million portfolio idea and go do the 50, 100, 200, $500,000 deal yeah. and get start getting stuff underneath your belt. That would be my advice to anybody starting out in, in this business or in life in general, right? But especially real estate. Amazing. That's amazing life advice, but more specific to your example, if listeners are looking to get into their first investment property, especially listeners who are in the corporate America finance slash accounting world, I want to help those people. And that's been my mission this year is to help those people. So if anybody out there is looking to kind of lay out exactly what Nathan just described as their first investment property, looking for a property that's between 50 and half a million dollars or even more, but that's kind of like the sweet spot for your first deal. If you're looking to get into that, uh, visit beforethemillions.com slash work with me. That's beforethemillions.com slash work with me. And Nathan, again, I want to thank you. Your Before the Million story has been amazing. Again, it, it seemed like everything that you've touched has turned into gold. And when you got into real estate investing, although your first investment property was such a success, you learned that you needed to perfect your craft. You learned that maybe it's not always going to be good. Like there are going to be bumps in the road and it's my job. It's up to me to be able to overcome those bumps. And we talk about due diligence. We went into, the, into detail on making sure that you're doing your physical due diligence and your financial due diligence. But I think that kind of speaks to how you should take on business in an overall aspect, whether it's real estate, whether it's an online business, whatever it is, you do your due diligence. If you're able to go into a business, learn the ins and outs of that business, you're going to be successful. You're going to be okay. Nathan is a prime example of somebody who's been able to do that in multiple industries. I mean, Nathan, you rocked it. Like what, at first when you started talking about uh, majoring, uh, going to grad school, uh, doing public policy, I was like, I wonder where he's going with that. I had no idea that you ran for office and that's amazing. So, and you ran, ran at such a young age. And then some of the other things that you did, the whole selling cars thing, like that was amazing. The whole affiliate marketing for the soybeans. I mean, who would think to do that? So your successes have boded well, but I'm glad that you were able to kind of, once you got into real estate investing, you might've even realized this way before that, but once you got into real estate investing, you you realized that there was a due diligence process to be had in any and every business that you're in. And that seems like that's kind of what you're helping others discover and helping others kind of formulate that path. So Nathan, again, I want to thank you. And if the listeners want to reach out to you, if they want to learn more about you, if they want to work with you, where can they find your information? Yes. So they can visit uh, the website is apartments.nathantabor.com. I do have an online course that people are interested in, but there's a lot of free information. Sign up for the emails. I send out an email about every other day just you know, short and sweet that says, have you thought about this? And it's just something that, you know, I talk about my successes, obviously, but I talk more about my failures because that's what people need to avoid, right? Yep. Yep. You know, if you're asking somebody for advice and you're driving, you want to know where the pitfalls are. You want to know where the holes are in the road. I don't care about the great, the good side of the road. I want to know what I need to avoid not to damage my car. And that's kind of where I come into real estate. My course is different because a lot of courses out there, oh, buy my course and you'll be a millionaire. Yeah. You can buy my course and be a millionaire if you did it, but more my course is driven to what you need to know that I learned the hard way. Yeah, I love that. 
I love that. Well, Nathan, this is, like I said, this has been spectacular and there was so much of your story that I kind of wanted to get into just because it was also fascinating, but um, maybe, we'll, maybe we'll save that for a part two, Nathan. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll- hey, I'd, I'd love to come back because we're, we're about a half of a percent into uh, the discussion of everything that's going on. Exactly. I'm just like, man, like, ah, I just want to dig down into that. But, but yeah, we'll, we'll definitely have to get you back on, Nathan. It's been amazing. And again, thank you for your time and we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. Thanks. Appreciate it, Derek.